0: Greetings, Lucy Kang here. If you want to stay in the loop with all things Making Contact, please take a moment to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, or visit our website, radioproject.org, to sign up for our weekly newsletter. Now, here's the show.
1: You're listening to Making
2: Contact.
0: I'm Suleyma Hamarani, and on today's Making Contact...
2: All their money was put in to a situation that only makes sense if interest rates remain low. And that was the whole predication of the bank.
0: We talked to John Nichols and Jeet here from The Nation about the Silicon Valley bank collapse.
2: Well, guess what? Interest rates are not really low. And So it's just an incredibly risky thing that they did. It was a gamble and it did not pay off.
0: What does the bailout mean for the future of our economy? And why did the bank crash in the first place?
1: What's incredible about this and why this is a big deal is that this is a circumstance where if it becomes a precedent, it means that the federal deposit insurance company, which is supposed to insure deposits up to about 250,000, has suddenly been expanded into a massive bailout operation for basically anybody that puts money in a bank.
0: Stay tuned, all that and more coming up. Welcome to our show today. I'm Salima Hammarani and joining me are John Nichols and Jeet here, who have both written for the nation about the reasons behind the Silicon Valley bank collapse in March of
1: 2023. SVB, the 16th largest bank in the U.S. with $175 billion in deposits, is now the biggest American bank to fail
0: since the 2008 financial crisis. On Friday, March 10th, the bank was found to have insufficient funds to cover its depositors, and then it went into a freefall.
1: — Out in California, after reporting a loss of over $1 billion, there were fears of a run on this bank. People wondering if they should have PTSD into 2008. What's going on here?
0: — The bank collapse was called a classic bank run. — Don't look now, but there's something funny going on over there at the bank,
2: George. I've never really seen one, but that's got all the earmarks of being a run.
0: But Jeet and John argue that actually some relatively new bank regulations and a set of risky decisions are what led to the collapse. So, John, can we quickly do a review for the audience? What is the Silicon Valley Bank? And give us an overview of what happened.
1: The Silicon Valley Bank is one of the most powerful banks in the country, not because of its size, but because of its clientele. By its name, we know that it's located in the Silicon Valley. And many of its clients were cutting edge tech entrepreneurs and folks who were were in the digital world, so to speak. They had a tremendous amount of money piled up in the bank, although the interesting dynamic of it is it was referred to as a, you know, kind of a regional bank, a smaller bank. And thus it had a different set of rules. It didn't have to monitor its money so closely. It didn't have to follow all the regulations that bigger banks did. And so you ended up in a situation where, because of a variety of factors we'll talk about later, they ended up in a crash situation. They did not have enough money to cover their accounts. The bank was taken over by the federal government. And in an unprecedented move, the president of the United States and other federal officials announced that they were going to make sure that all the deposits were made whole.
0: The decision to bail out the bank was made over a weekend, two days after the collapse. Basically, the Treasury Department, the Federal Reserve and the FDIC, or the Federal Deposit Insurance Company, said that they would make sure that every depositor received every last cent, even if traditionally their money wasn't actually insured.
1: What's incredible about this and why this is a big deal is that this is a circumstance where if it becomes the precedent, it means that the Federal Deposit Insurance Company, which is supposed to insure deposits up to about 250000 has suddenly been expanded into a massive bailout operation for basically anybody that puts money in a bank. That's a transformational moment. So the Silicon Valley bank collapse raises profound issues about how we regulate banks and about how the future of insurance for bank deposits may go. Both of them are gonna have profound effects for American taxpayers.
0: And Gee, why were startups and that sort of investment capital so drawn to this particular bank?
2: I think the specific nature of the Silicon Valley bank came out of the specific nature of the uh, industry, the tech startups. Now, these are not sort of mature industries where you have a regular amount of money coming in and money going out, you know, let's say the big car companies or even like, you know, your local mom and pop restaurant. These are like startup companies. They start off with like much more capital than a normal business and much less money coming in. So they need to have a place where they can you know, maintain normal operations. And Silicon Valley Bank, my understanding is like it really made itself a bank that could do that. They had people who put in a tremendous amount of money that was uninsured. You're typically insured up to a quarter of a million dollars. But they had at least 10 depositors that had more than a billion dollars in their checking account.
0: Is that normal to have a billion dollars in a checking account?
2: No, it is not normal. And so with, with that special setup that you're going to have a lot of money from depositors, sometimes what a normal bank would do is, you know, like they'd have money for depositors and then it'd be lending some money out. You have some risky businesses you give money to. You have some very safe business and you have like money in long-term bonds. What they did in say was to put an ordinarily large amount of money in long-term bonds, which one would think is a safe thing to do.
0: And we should just back up one second because I mentioned that a lot of people are calling this a bank run. And, you know, a bank run is technically something that could happen to any bank because all banks have their money in circulation. It's not sitting under the bank in some kind of massive vault like in the movies. So if everyone who had money deposited in a bank decided to withdraw all their money all at once, the bank could crash. It can't guarantee that everybody would be able to withdraw cash at the same time because most of it's in circulation. So, G, is the issue that because of these bonds, Silicon Valley Bank didn't have the money on hand when people were trying to withdraw?
2: The issue was that where they were keeping their savings, which is overwhelmingly in bonds. And the thing is, these are long term bonds. They're not liquid, right? You, you get them for like, you know, 10, 20, 30 years or more. And so when you have a run on the bank, you don't have the money on hand to pay it off. But also these long term bonds They invested them in a period where the interest rates were lower. Once interest rates rise, these long-term bonds, they become degraded in value. They put all their eggs in one basket, is is the simple way to put it. They put all their eggs in the basket of long-term bonds. And if you're a bank, you normally like, you know, you do have some long-term bonds, but you also balance it with other things. And you balance it with other money that you lend out that is more resilient in terms of interest rates. They did not do that. All their money was put in to a situation that only makes sense if interest rates remain low. And that was the whole predication of the bank. Well guess what? Interest rates did not remain low. And so it's like just an incredibly risky thing that they did. It was a gamble and it did not pay off.
0: Okay, but John, back to you. Interest rates have changed many times throughout history. Why did they assume that the economic situation in the country would never change?
1: Sure. We had been through a period where the Federal Reserve had kept Bank rates, you know, interest rates, very, very low. This really was a play out of the 2008, 2009 economic downturn. Well, this was, you know, great for a lot of investors and bankers and stuff like that because they could get money cheap. But it also created a, a certain comfort level with that, that circumstance. It became so locked in that I think there was a doubt that interest rates would actually ever go up at, you know, some sort of substantial rate. Then we hit inflation. And the inflation that really kind of took off during and after COVID-19, after the pandemic hit, caused the Federal Reserve to decide that they had to raise interest rates. The Federal Reserve kind of wanted to do so anyway, so they were looking for an excuse, they found it, and they started to raise these interest rates. That was something that had a profound impact on Silicon Valley Bank. Frankly, it's had a lot of impact on all sorts of other people. We should understand that raising interest rates in this way ripples through all of society. It has an impact, you know, even for people perhaps getting jobs and things like that. Now, here's where the problem came in as regards Silicon Valley Bank. The Federal Reserve is supposed to kind of keep an eye on banks and what it does and how it affects banks. And the Federal Reserve didn't think about this, or at least there's not much evidence that they thought about this because they were apparently as surprised as anybody else that Silicon Valley Bank and other banks as well ran into trouble. And the next stumble, if we can you know, kind of keep looking at this circumstance, is that you should have federal regulators examining banks, right? Looking at, you know, how are you managing your money? What are you doing? Especially when it's a bank this size with the better part of $250 billion. You know, it's a lot of money. It's a quarter of a trillion, right? So when you're talking about that kind of money, there should be bank regulators coming in on a regular basis. They were not doing so at the level they were supposed to, because in 2018, the Congress and the Trump administration changed the rules. And they said, if you're a quote unquote regional bank, and I mean, that's a bank with, you know, under 250 billion, you don't have to be as strictly monitored. And so they basically created a circumstance where this was almost destined to happen, where some bank was going to be under-regulated, under-examined and crash and burn.
0: Okay, and so on that point, we are going to talk about the bailout. But before that, let's talk a little bit more about what happened in 2018. You've both written about 2018 being the basis of what happened to the Silicon Valley Bank. John, can you explain?
1: Well, as soon as Dodd-Frank was enacted, the bank started a a major lobbying campaign to kind of undermine it.
0: For those of you listening, Dodd-Frank was passed right after the big financial crash in 2007. And it's this big piece of law that was meant to rein in the big banks and speculative investments that could lead to another crash. Dodd-Frank involves a lot of guardrails, including breaking up big institutions, monitoring banks and their investments. Basically, it's kind of a watchdog. But of course, the financial world isn't happy about being watched.
1: So we should understand they were at work immediately. And the way that banks lobby, the way that their industry lobbies, is by hiring members of Congress, former members of Congress, who have left Congress, and they hire Democrats and Republicans, and they pay them a lot of money, and they send them out to Capitol Hill, and they, you know, they're sent up there to lie, right? Or uh, to put it politely, to make the case in a way that is very beneficial to their clients. And so the big lie that played out here was an argument that Dodd-Frank was bad for so-called community banks. Now, if you think about a community bank, you know, I grew up in a little tiny town in Wisconsin, a town of about a thousand people. We had the State Bank of Union Grove. The president of that bank, the board members of that bank, they all lived in the town. It was a little bank. It gave farm loans and loans for Main Street businesses. If it got in trouble, right, and went down, it would probably harm Union Grove and several townships surrounding it but it wasn't going to take down the global economy. These banks took that understanding and they suddenly said, yeah, a bank with, say, $250 billion, that's a community bank too. And they kept pushing this fantasy. And initially it was laughed at, right? But over time, they got it to take. And, and I mean, clearly how they got it to take was when Republicans took over the House. And they really jumped into action in 2000, You know especially in in 2017, 2018, when they had a Republican president they thought would be sympathetic. What they did then was they wanted to portray it as a bipartisan proposal, right? They had all the Republicans on board. And then in the Senate, they had 17 Democrats, including some very prominent Democrats, key Democrats from key states. In the House, they had 33 Democrats who went along with them. So they pitched this notion as this is a bipartisan effort to help community banks. It was a complete fantasy. We know it was a fantasy because the congressional analysts, right, ran the numbers. They looked at this stuff. They actually produced reports before the vote occurred where they said, you know, this, this is not a good idea. This is going to create vulnerabilities. This is going to create dangers. So every member of Congress that voted on this, if they read the paperwork that comes from the budget office and others, they knew that there were dangers here, but they chose to believe the lobbyists. And Even if they didn't read their paperwork, all they had to do was listen to the congressional debate because Bernie Sanders, senator from Vermont, literally went to the floor of the Senate and read the reports into the record.
0: Just yesterday, the Congressional Budget Office told
1: us that the legislation we are debating today will, and I quote, increase the likelihood that a large financial firm with assets of between hundred billion and 250 billion would fail, end of quote. In other words, this legislation makes it more likely that we will see another financial crisis, makes it more likely that there will be another huge taxpayer bailout and massive dislocation of our economy. Elizabeth Warren was incredibly outspoken about this. Outside of Congress, uh, although she now is in Congress, Katie Porter, who was a college professor and an expert in, in many of these issues, was literally saying on a daily basis, this is a very dangerous piece of legislation. You shouldn't do this. And yet it was ignored. And I think we have to be very, very clear on why it was ignored. It was ignored because a lack of regulation is, in the view of the banks, a way that they can make a lot more money. Right? That they can have a lot more flexibility to do as they choose. In the service of letting banks do what they want to do, you know, without oversight, our Congress capitulated to them. I and mean, if we want to understand why, the lobbyists are influential. There's no question of that. But it's silly to just talk about lobbyists. What you have to talk about is campaign finance. And The banking industry, if you go to Open Secrets, which is the website that monitors campaign contributions and campaign money, if you go to Open Secrets and you you hit different members of Congress, they group where their money comes from, right? You know, healthcare industry, forest products industry, invariably, you're going to find the banking industry as a huge, huge donor. And that's really the answer here. Members of Congress took money for their campaigns from an industry and then, Winked and nodded, you know, kind of went along with an industry lie, and that's really the underpinning of how we ended up
2: with an underregulated banking system that ultimately produced the Silicon Valley collapse. And there's also, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, since John mentioned that, like you know, the these sort of local community banks, there's almost a cultural element to this. One of the articles, the first articles about this in the New York Times, evoked "It's a Wonderful Life," the you know beloved Christmas movie with Jimmy Stewart.
1: I have some news for you, folks. I was just talking to old man Potter and he's guaranteed cash payments to the bank. The bank's gonna reopen next week. But, George, I got my money here. Did he guarantee this place? Well, no, Charlie, I didn't even ask him. We don't need Potter over here. I'll
0: take mine now.
1: No, but you're... You're you're thinking of this place all wrong, as if I had the money back in a safe. the, The money's not here.
2: And, you know, like said, well, the bank run is, you know, like it's in a wonderful life. They don't have the money and people like come rushing to the bank. And I mean, that's the image that the New York Times wanted to present to this. But you know, we do with Silicon Valley, like, you know, even the small companies there are like 30, 40 million dollar companies. And but a lot of them are like, you know, people like Peter Thiel had 50 million dollars. There's a streaming service that had half a billion dollars in its a checking account. Can you imagine keeping half a billion dollars in a checking account? And perhaps this should be the next issue that's raised, which is all about like moral hazard, because you asked earlier, like, is this a normal way to do it? And no, like if you actually have a lot of money, but you need it for payroll or whatever, you figure out you can use third parties to have the money spread out all over, all over the place. You can buy extra insurance. There's things that a normal company could do. But these Silicon Valley companies, they had such a sense that they were like impervious, that they they, they were going to be protected. That they did an incredibly r- risky things. There were two aspects of risk taking here. One was the Silicon Valley Bank, which had this very risky strategy of uh, putting a lot of money into bonds, uh, assuming that interest rates weren't going to go up. And then also the depositors, who like you know, in some cases deposited more than a billion dollars in a checking account, of which only like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars was insured. Like, so that's like owning, like, let's say a $2 million house and having $10,000 insurance on it, right? If someone did that and then their house burned down, would you suddenly say, well, you know, we should get the, all the insurance companies together to help bail out that person?
0: Right. But gee, even with all that said, I don't know if they ever doubted that they were going to get a bailout and get it soon. I mean, these investors know that they're not a poor person working in a factory in Detroit trying to keep their home, you know?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I, mean, I, said, I said that they did a very risky thing. I'm the one that was wrong. They did something that was very safe because they knew they were going to be bailed out. And they were right.
0: And we're going to talk a lot more about the bailout and what it means for our economy going forward right after the break. We're jumping in to remind you that you are listening to Making Contact. If you like today's show and you want more information or if you'd like to leave us a comment, Visit us at radioproject.org. There, you can access today's show and all of our prior episodes. Okay, now back to the show. Welcome back to Making Contact. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the Silicon Valley bank crash. We're joined today by John Nichols and Jeet here from The Nation. And in the first half of the show, we talked about what led up to the crash. And now we're going to talk about its aftermath. John, I'm curious to know your thoughts. Were you surprised that the Silicon Valley Bank got a bailout so quickly? And was there really any discussion of other
1: options? No, it wasn't a surprise at all. I mean, these are very powerful players and very powerful institutions. And if you recognize what happened in 2018 when they did this deregulation, right? And if you also recognize the failures of the Federal Reserve to monitor and keep aware of what was going on, it was a a given that at some point you were going to have a, a problem occur, and it happened that that problem occurred in Silicon Valley, right? Which is one of the great drivers not of the whole of the American economy, right? But right. certainly of a big part of the American economy, the tech industries, etc., and of the stock market. And that's where you really got to notice here, because if you've got a meltdown in the Silicon Valley. That very quickly becomes a stock market crisis. And you even saw some real turbulence in those first days. That is something that an incumbent president who's planning to run for re-election and members of Congress and others, they do not want to see that. And so you had a political response. We have seen it before. This is a different kind of bailout. They even tried to give it a different name. But at the end of the day, they're using the power of the federal government to make sure that people who did risky things would come out fine. And that message has been so hardwired into the American experiment for so long that of course it was predictable. The striking thing is, the one thing that's equally predictable is that they will never ever bail out a working family if somebody gets cancer, right? And they run into tough times and they maybe, maybe even are gonna go bankrupt and lose their home. That bailout isn't coming. And it isn't coming for the student who worked really hard in school but had to take major loans. No bailouts coming there. So we know exactly where the bailouts go. We know exactly who it goes to. It is to the billionaire class and to their bankers.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting point. G, you know, there's also been a lot of anger I've seen vented online directed towards Silicon Valley, which has surprised them because of the speed at which they received the bailout. And, you know, this double standard that John just mentioned, it is really striking.
2: Yeah, I mean, the two things, the contrast is striking because if you look at the student debt thing, you basically have people who made a very rational choice. They were in a society where you're encouraged to get an education, told that's the path towards the middle class, and were told that, you know, well, the money you'll make from these jobs will pay off for your student debt. And then suddenly something that was beyond their control which the economic meltdown uh, made it so that they were stuck with debt that was impossible for them to pay back. And, you know, as a society, you want to try to help people in that situation. But when there's an argument for student debt relief, Larry Summers will say, no, 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 there's a moral hazard problem. This will encourage more bad behavior. Whereas, like, as we've discussed with Silicon Valley Bank, there's, like, multiple levels of risk-taking. They're in a situation where the consequences of their actions will never have to be paid by themselves. You'll have to be paid by someone else. And I think that's the real root of the anger. People understand that, you know, in America, you can go bankrupt if you get cancer, right? But these people, because they're wealthy and connected, never face consequences for their action. And I think it's perfectly rational why people are, like, angry at that situation.
0: There were some Silicon Valley supporters who argued that the bailout was good for the entire economy and that actually society should support bailouts, even the poor, if we want the economy not to crash?
2: Well, it's an interesting question as to what would have happened if they had not uh, bailed out. I think anyone who had insurance had less than $250,000, which I think is most people, right? Like I would ask your listeners, how much money do you have in your checking account? And I'm willing to bet it's less than a quarter of a million dollars. Most people would have been covered. And then the people that had more than that, like say Peter Thiel at $50 million, what would have happened is that the bank would have been taken over by another bank. It would have been liquidated. The value of the bonds would have been evaluated, which would have been less than what, you know, Silicon Valley had put into it. But you'd you'd have to take a haircut. So let's say 50 cents on the dollar. So instead of getting $50 million back, Peter Thiel would have gotten $25 million back. Well, You know, life is tough, it's tough all over.
0: John, uh, last question. I'm curious to know, where does the Silicon Valley Bank bailout leave us? Are we back in a situation like 2007, 2008?
1: Well, so it's important to explain how the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation works, right? The way FDIC works is that the banks pay in for insurance for their deposits. And, you know, they pay in a relatively small amount. It's like, you know, it's a classic insurance model. But it's important to understand the FDIC does not exist to protect depositors. It exists to protect the banks, right? The banks want to make sure that, you know, they're a stable enough entity that people will put their money there so banks can loan it out and do all the things they want to do. And and so if you understand it in that way, right, the banks want to pay as little as they can for as much insurance as they can get. It's like anybody else. Well, certainly if you're only bailing out the Silicon Valley Bank, right? You, FDIC can probably handle that, right? But if we've established this as the precedent going forward, if our standard going forward is any bank goes down, the federal government FDIC is going to come in and bail that bank out. Well, FDIC is not going to be able to do that in the long term, right? Right. If you have a real, you know, broad banking collapse, I mean, it's going to go way beyond, you know, their their capacity. Now, you could reform the FDIC, right? Get more resources into it from the banks, have them pay more for insurance. You could reinstitute and say, boy, we had an emergency one-time off thing, and we we went above the the standard amount there because we, you know, it's unique circumstance. We'll never do that again. But we haven't had either of those things happen. Right now, we are in a circumstance where it appears that the next bank that fails is going to be able to fully expect that all their depositors will be bailed out as well. That does two things. Number one, it makes banks less responsible. And number two, it, it creates a whole new model as regards how depositors think about where they put their money and you know whether they spread it out or put it in one place. And so, in the midst of this crisis for Silicon Valley Bank, we are radically reshaping how the FDIC works, how banks operate, and how savers think about saving, you know, big savers, people, corporations and wealthy people, think about saving their money. All of that is being reshaped without a serious discussion. This is like a Sunday afternoon in Washington where people were really scared, and they said, you know, we're going to do this, Right. Well, the end result is right now we're in a situation where they've established a whole new world as regards the financial services sector without you know, any serious debate and frankly, without any real checks and balances. It's, I would say we are right now on a tightrope and there is any chance that we could fall off that tightrope. And then if we do, the only thing that's going to save us is not going to be the FDIC. It's going to be the, the American taxpayers in probably massive amounts.
0: And G, you know, I feel like we have this conversation every time there is a market crash, but what can we do to fix the ways investment banks like SVB operate so that we don't have another market crash, so that we don't end up in another financial crisis?
2: Well, I mean, there's so much to say. John's point, especially about insurance and like, you know, this new uncertainty, like, you know, like, are we actually going to insure like any amount of money? That, to me, is a very worrying and sort of destabilizing thing. And, you know, there's some very radical economists out there that are suggesting that, you know, the way out is to separate out finance capital from banking. There's a, the actual function of banking, the normal function of banking, people need a place to park their money so they can, like, make payroll and make rent. And you could actually, like, you know, like have the post office do that, literally. And then if you want people, venture capitalists, You know, doing the casino stuff, that could be something totally separate from where people like park their savings.
0: There also could have been a lot more debate as inflation started on different ways to fight it. So raising interest rates is just one option. The others are less attractive to the elite, such as raising taxes on the rich.
2: And so a lot of decisions that are actually political decisions that should be debated out, you know, it's Democrats, Republicans, left, right and center. People should be putting their opinions in, you know, like, what do they want out of these big institutions that shape society? They're not being made in the political arena. They're being made behind closed doors. And that's a problem.
0: That was Jeet here and John Nichols joining us from The Nation magazine to talk about the Silicon Valley bank collapse. And to everyone listening, here's a hot tip. Don't put a billion dollars into a checking account. I'm Salima Hamarani. That does it for today's show. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.